Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Joel Morris. I'm Jason Hazley. As usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we think we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is Danielle Ward. Danielle is an award-winning comedy writer and is probably best known in this room for coming up with the excellent panel game Dilemma, uh, chairing Do the Right Thing, the podcast panel game, and also for doing something which we couldn't do and writing Danger Mouse, mm-hmm. a project we walked away from because it was too hard. And Daniel has these scars to prove she survived the mouse. <laughs> yeah, I've done it. I've done it. It's hot. It's a hard job. It's very tough. It really is, isn't it? Anything with an American exec team is a hard job. How long are those apps? 11 minutes? Are they something yeah. like that? Yeah, we spent seven months on an 11-minute script and didn't get it away. It just, we couldn't do it. We tried to give them the money back. <laughs> Didn't um, uh, a friend of ours? I won't say his name, but a friend of ours that we all know uh, had to, ended up getting paid twice for a script because they asked him to do so many redrafts of it. Wow! They've got a very wow. high bar because it's American animation. They th- they tend to behave as if you're working for Pixar. You're but not, not you're, Pixar money. Yeah, you're doing it for CBBC money. Animations for kids is now so good, and the scripts are so good. Yeah, that it's a very competitive market. I think I remember being told that they got Brian Truman who devised the original scripts for Danger Mouse in as a consultant originally. And they said, well, how did you write the scripts back in the day? And he went, I went to the pub, I had three pints, and I wrote, toilets invade London, and then they made it the next yeah. day. You've made it too difficult. Yes, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard job, but it's a rewarding job. I'm really, I, pr- actually, there's a couple of scripts of mine coming out that I'm really proud of. So I think it's, it's a job 
I wanted to do so badly. I really angled for Danger Mouse. And I think my inner 10-year-old was so ashamed when we didn't manage to do it. It's one of the few jobs we've ever walked away from because we found it so hard. When I was four years old, I had, um, you know, those little moulds, the silicon moulds that you'd pour plaster of Paris into? Yeah, and paint. maker. Yeah, yeah that kind I, of thing. I had the Danger Mouse set. Oh, I loved Danger wow. Mouse as a kid. I was obsessed with him. It was one of the best shows growing up because it was written like proper comedy. Yeah. It wasn't a kid's show. It has a lot of bad puns. The, the old ones are just all bad puns. That's all it is. <laughs> bad puns and long sequences oh. in the dark with blinking eyes. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> uh, Danielle, what have you brought for us to look at today? So I have brought a sitcom that I absolutely love. And whenever I say to myself, oh, I really like American sitcom. I don't really... What British sitcoms do I like? And then I remember that my favourite sitcom of all time is probably Bottom. That's, this is brilliant news. I love Bottom. I just, it's so good. What is it about Bottom that makes it float to the top? I think more than anything, it's the performances. Because like, if you look at the, I mean, the scripts are weird. There's loads of really weird jokes in there and lots of really bad jokes and lots of really old jokes. But it's so self-contained. I mean, I always think of Bottom as being two guys in a flat and that's all it is. And what? Like, you'd never do that now. And it sounds ridiculous to say brave because it wasn't. It was just them dicking about on a, <laughs> on a set for in front of an audience, which is what they used to do. But having this basically two very strange characters who are horrible and grubby and weird in completely different ways in a flat, just doing nothing... I mean, it's it's Beckett for kids. That's, that's how I can see it. It is. You're right. You're right. When we went back and looked at that episode, Culture, which is the one where they have had their TV repossessed by Rumbelows. Yeah. Although, in fact, they find it behind the fridge later. And they just try and find things to do. And it really is. It's so it's so Beckett. This is an absolutely blank page, and we're not going to achieve anything by the end of it. It's yeah. wonderful. We've only got five pieces. We can use other things for the missing pieces. Oh, great idea. Now, let's see. We need 16 prawns. Well, we're in luck there. We've got a bag in the freezer that are four years past their sell-by date. We can use those. Oh, oh chess. God, I adore chess. I should have been a chess champion. If I had spent my whole life learning how to play chess better than anyone else in the world, I could have been the chess champion. The reason I chose that episode, I, I, like, I don't want to jump in on the quotes, but it has my favourite bit ever in any sitcom ever, which is the whole, <laughs> we could play pin the tail on the donkey. We haven't got a donkey. <laughs> it's just amazing till they get to pin the sausage on the fridge. We haven't got a sausage. Stick some sellotape on the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love that bit so much. Going back, I've seen every episode of Bottom so many times and it still makes me laugh out loud, which I think is the key. In a way, like it's a real shame actually that we've moved away from audience sitcoms because as a kid, I think, you need the guidance of an audience laughter track to, to understand comedy. Mm. Yes. Which is why I think so many... Well, it's why I think Mrs Brown's Boys is so popular with all ages because if you're like seven years old and it's your first venture into actual comedy rather than kids' TV comedy, you need that laughter to, to know that that's a joke. I mean, I wanted to talk about this because this is very much an audience sitcom and it's from an age of audience sitcom where the people who were doing it had done lots of it. I and mean, one of the things that I think is the problem with doing audience sitcom now is that not enough people have had enough practice to be brilliant at it. Yeah. And this is Mayan and Aid Edmondson who have done lots of this, but then it's directed by Ed Bai, who directed The Young Ones and knows how to direct 
huge, complicated, one-take slapstick sequences for a live audience. Yeah. You'd never do it that way now. Yeah, it would just be, let's have two cameras for coverage. I mean, that, <laughs> that's what all... I get a bit frustrated with um, the BBC audience sitcom system of, you know, let's just stick some cameras on it. Like, there's no artistry to the directing. In fact, someone said to me, if you want to have a career at the BBC, become a live studio audience director because it's one of them. We were talking a while ago about how to bring back that feeling of pace and shape that you get in an audience sitcom. And it comes from people who are experienced uh, vision mixing, yeah. which is the thing. People edit now. They edit, they take the film and then they cut it up like a film. Whereas back in the day, these people had trained on Top of the Pops and Blue Peter and things, and they knew how to edit in camera live. And the only time I've seen that skill done since is we spent a day with the crew who make Educating Essex and Educating Yorkshire. And they edit a lot of those storylines with the multi-cameras around the school yeah. live because the data would take up too much space. Yeah. And I was watching them going, you are editing this like a sitcom. This is done like the good life. You're telling a story by cutting between two shots and one shots. And those guys, I think, can probably direct a sitcom if you drag them out of reality TV. They're quite good. Wow, that's that's interesting. Which had never occurred to me. Yeah. I think that, that that skill still exists, but it's probably on Big Brother, Yeah, but not in comedy. Something that people might not know, so we'll just flag it up here because it's worth knowing about, is that when you do a sitcom like Bottom you will have five cameras in the studio and Ed, the director, will have gone through the script and will have put every single camera cut in for the vision mixer to play it. So he knows every single shot before they start filming. Mm. It's a hell of a lot of work. It's a really big job. And when you do it as well as he does it here, hats off. Yeah, I mean, that's this is what is frustrating with British comedy at the moment is that when audience sitcom is done well, there is nothing like it. And we all know that. But Bottom is so weird. I think that's what's missing from modern sitcom is that to make an audience sitcom, there's the idea that it has to be really accessible and boring and a family. So you've got the kids who can't act. I mean, why would you put kids in an audience sitcom? Don't know. Have adults who can do it. But Bottom and Blackadder, but Bottom especially, um, and, and the young ones, such a weird setup. If if you were making Bottom now, you would make it as a single camera sitcom. Yeah, because yes. it would be about it would basically be peep show. It would be fucking dark as yes. well, wouldn't it? It would be so dark. I mean, it's part of the reason that I loved Bottom so much growing up because I remember that I think it was on a Thursday at nine nine o'clock on BBC Two, and the nine o'clock on BBC Two was always the sitcom slot. So it was Bottom, or it was Red Dwarf, or it was Blackadder. That was the slot, and it was you all talked about it next day at school. Bottom was such an influence on me and my friends at school that I have a friend called Katie who still says things like, ahoy matey, and things like that, and <laughs> cheerio, and she talks exactly like Eddie, like whenever she's saying, skip matey, me old chum, she'll, t- she'll talk like that when she's talking to you. She is married to a sailor, though, as well. <laughs> it's excusable. Yeah. Did she deliberately marry a sailor so this wouldn't look weird? I think so, yeah. So it was such a big influence, but you'd, you'd watch it on a Thursday night, and then the next day you'd all be in talking about it. And and it was and it was because as a kid it's weird and I and I know it's not very I shouldn't be saying this as a woman but I absolutely love comic violence on screen like I remember the first time I saw Salad Days the amazing Monty Python sketch yeah. where they all have bits cut off yep. that <laughs> Kenny Everett when I used to, my favourite Kenny Everett sketches were, and I'm too young to really appreciate the actual sketches but I used to love the, the DIY Rage ones Rage Prescott yes where he'd cut his arm off he'd cut his arm off and things like that and like there's an episode of Bottom where um Eddie has his, both of his legs cut off <laughs> and sewn on backwards. Like, you can't do that in a single-camera sitcom. Yes, I suppose one of the things that helps it is that it's not really happening. Yeah. 
because it's obviously on a set. Yeah. It's, a, well, it's a live action cartoon, isn't it? Yeah. That's what's going yeah. on. It's like, yeah. it's like Roadrunner or something. Yeah. It's basically the, these two characters will never achieve the thing they set out to achieve and we'll come back and watch them again and again and again. It's mm. endless iterations of the same thing, isn't it? Because it's a cartoon, it's not real. You can do stuff in it that if you're in a single camera sitcom and you were supposed to think these people were... Uh, the guys from Peep Show, yeah. the sexism would be unacceptable. Yeah. The the disgusting behaviour would be unacceptable. But the joy of this is that the stuff comes... is a performer's show. It's not yeah. necessarily a writer's show. But it does have that joy of saying anything they write down can go straight from the typewriter to the stage, to the audience, to the screen, to the kid at home. Yeah. There's no limits on it, and there's no limits on it because it isn't really happening. But you say it's not a writer's show, but then there will be some lines. I think it's the Christmas one where um, Dave Hedgehog and... Uh... <laughs> it's a writer's show because there's a character called Dave Hedgehog <laughs> yeah. in it for a start. Spud Gun and Dave Hedgehog come round. And, uh, <laughs> and like there's a bit where Rich just refers to him as you anus and just things like that that's such a perfect word the pilot episode opens in pure sort of Galton and Simpson territory they're coming back a bit like Sid and Tony Hancock or Steptoe and they go into the horrible flat and they Richie looks out the window and does this monologue about everyone in London having sex except him that is pure Hancock yeah and that is really good writing and it's a good performance he's written for a, a tone that he can perform but that's a pure bit of writing. I'm not saying when I say it's not a writer's show that it's not well written. Yeah. More these are performers writing for themselves rather than what you might think of as a show that's written for the page. I, I know exactly what you mean. What is interesting is nowadays when you see the performer writer thing, that it tends to not be the best sitcoms. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds awful. But I sometimes think that. I don't know if it's because people are given like, enough rope to hang themselves. But I say that. I mean, you know, look at oh, I watched Dark Place recently, and that is so beautifully written. So maybe mm. I'm maybe I'm getting it it's wrong. Because he's playing a writer. Yeah, maybe that's <laughs> what it is. But I I know what you mean because I guess because we're writers who aren't performers. Well, I mean, we're all, but you know, we're never going to get our own sitcom where we are the helm. Dream on. <laughs> we, I guess. Cause, so for, I get this too. I'm like, so I look at the American shows where it is very much like Arrested Development, which I love, or Community, where there's that person who's the writer, and then they get these amazing actors. And so I never really think of someone who absolutely loves that writer performer relationship. Sometimes it feels a little bit too like, who had a good Edinburgh? Let's give them a sitcom. And mm. there's a lot of that around at the moment, but. I never, I never think of that with Bottom. I never think of it as being these guys that have written for themselves. It all, almost, when I watch it, it's really easy for me to imagine that there were other writers because I think it's so brilliantly written. It's, well, it's so it's, good, it's almost like they didn't write it themselves. <laughs> it's almost like they got a professional in. I think what it's got in, in it is it's got a voice. And the voice it's got is their voice. It's the voice of those two guys talking to each other down the pub or in their office or wherever they write. And what that can sometimes be because a writer performer is writing for themselves yeah. and it can sometimes be because a writer really understands the voice of their lead actor like again Gorton and Simpson or Eddie Braben with Morecambe Wise that the yeah. writer has got into the soul of their performers and it's something I think that this has in common with Peep Show is that Sam and Jesse understand David and Rob's voices so well and I used to be really jealous I'm going love Peep Show and I love Sam and Jesse's mm -hmm. writing and I was really jealous of how effortlessly they appear to have been able to write something that two other performers 
could just perform as if that was them talking. And I mentioned this to a friend who, who knows David and Rob and knows Sam and Jesse, and he went, what you've got to remember is that Sam and Jesse talk like David and Rob. One of them is David and one of them is Rob. And they've accidentally found these avatars. Yeah. So when they just talk to each other in the office, that's the voice they're going to use for the show. And it's that seamlessness that Bottom's got. This is how Rick Mayo and Adrian Edmondson talk to each other when they're being silly. Yeah, and one of the things I, I find so amazing about Bottom is, as a writer, I have looked into some of the the key ideas about writing. I remember once going to a workshop, Paul Mayhew Hartley did this brilliant thing and it was talking about status, which I'd never really thought of. I think when you first start writing, you don't really think about the technique involved. And it was all about the status of characters, which I do think is hugely important to sitcom. This is high status and low status. It's high status and low status or even just different state like people have to have different and the status relationships so I do a bit of work for the writers room um, at the BBC and I gave some notes once about how if you look at something like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia there's a real status at play so you've got Dennis who is high status you've got Mac who thinks he's the same status as Dennis but isn't you've got Charlie who absolutely understands that he is low status and then you've got Dee who doesn't want to play the status game but if anything is sometimes even below Charlie and it can change around but generally we all know that Dennis is high status and Mac is doing that and Charlie's low status and all that sort of thing and I do think that's so important for sitcom and what is brilliant about Bottom is their stasis switch all yes. the time in a way that doesn't really happen in sitcom. I remembered vaguely, I haven't seen Bottom for ages, I remembered that Rick Mayo was alpha, was yeah. the high status guy, the dreamer, the Hancock, and that Adrian Edmondson was playing a lower status, sort of slightly more father doogly clown. Yeah. But Rick's ignorant and Adrian Edmondson is clever. Yeah. He knows stuff. One of them's a virgin, one of them is sexually experienced. Yeah. Their statuses are constantly changing because they're a double act who've played this game on stage a lot. <laughs> I mean, look, look all around you. It's Friday night, and everywhere you look, there's buildings full of people all doing it. <laughs> all doing it and doing it, and then stopping and having a fag and then doing it a bit more. <laughs> there's not a single one of them saying, hang on a minute, this really isn't fair. I mean, here's us doing it and doing it and doing it, and there's poor old Richie, and he hasn't done it, ever. <laughs> He hasn't got anyone to do it to. I'll tell you what, I'll pop down and do it to him for a bit and then pop back up. Would that be all right? I remember learning about status and going, this is dynamite yeah. because it gives the audience clues as to what to expect yeah. and audiences like to guess what's going to happen next yeah. and status helps you know that they both think that they're high status at a certain point Richie in particular is brilliant because like with the culture episode he loves the fact that they haven't got a TV because he can be cultured for the <laughs> evening yeah. and yeah. he gets it so wrong because he doesn't know anything but he really reminds me of people in my family that if you took the, oh, oh we would love to not have a television and they go <laughs> insane because all they do is watch ITV <laughs> It's so beautifully observed, but also brilliantly played out. And, and but it's such a complicated character. It's not there's an idea that if you do sitcom, you have to have very big archetypes. And you know the, the whole thing about the Friends pilot. They walk in, and you know that Monica is obsessed with cleaning, and Ross is the every guy, and Rachel's the the pretty one. With Bottom, they are both really complicated characters. It's very dynamic, isn't it? It's it's like watching a game of tennis, actually, yeah. is what it is, because it's just two people in kind of competition with each other, both in character and out of character. Yeah. I wanted to mention the sit of the sitcom as well, because there's a thing in sitcom which is that your characters should ideally be trapped by something they have done. So yes. Basil Fawlty doesn't want to be running this hotel, but he went along with it, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Fletcher is in prison, but he's there because he did something wrong. Yeah. Um, 
And occasionally in sitcom, you do something called a bottle episode where you confine the characters to the smallest possible space and don't let them get out. And it's a writing exercise. There's a nice episode of One Foot in the Grave where he's stuck in a traffic jam. So all it is is just the two of them in the car. This feels like this entire sitcom is a bottle. It feels like it's the biggest, tightest trap. So the only thing these two characters can do is just bounce off the walls with each other. It's so unlike any other sitcom. It gets smaller. We watched the yeah. pilot, and the pilot, we counted five, six sets. There's a pub, there's a sex shop with Kevin McNally in it. Oh, yeah. there's, there's some toilets. And by the time we get to series two, they're just in that flat set. Yeah. And it's like watching a stage play. In, that, in the episode that we looked at, they don't leave the room, do they? No. It's that, just one room. That's, the, that, that's why I think that's such a fascinating episode, because that's what I think of Bottom as being. Even though there are mm. episodes where they go and do other stuff, I think of it as being two guys in a flat. The other um, brilliant bottle episode is the one where at the fairground when they're on the Ferris wheel. And the whole episode is two men on a Ferris wheel. But that shows enormous confidence as performers to know that you've had experience that audiences will just watch you. Yeah. And you know you can be funny enough to fill half an hour quite effortlessly that way. The shadow that's cast over this is the young ones. And I think interestingly... We sat trying to work out the structure because we were trying to work out whether they're high or low status. And then we ran it past uh, the other test, which is Mitch Hurwitz's, who wrote Arrested Development, his theory yeah. about matriarch, patriarch, craftsman and clown. That yeah. Basically, he says the Beatles are the best example. Paul's the matriarch, John's the patriarch, George's the craftsman, Ringo's the clown. And it works in a lot of sitcoms. And the way you can change the balance of a sitcom is to remove one of those elements. So the Simpsons are matriarch, patriarch, craftsman and clown. Yeah. But in this one, they've taken out the matriarch and the patriarch. Yeah. There's no mum and dad. Neil, who was the mum in The Young Ones, and Mike, who was the dad, yeah. have gone. And the two feuding kids, one of whom is, is wants to better themselves, yeah. who thinks that their life could be better, and one who is happy down there. You've got there, craftsman and clown, and you feel the absence of mum and dad. <laughs> I worry for them. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's just... <laughs> again, that's why it is so unlike anything else I've ever seen. Like the the more like when I watched it when I was younger, I thought Bottom was just really funny. All the slapstick, all the really stupid jokes, all the um, like amazing performances. The, the, it sounds like I'm more siding with Rick Mayo, like in terms of the big performances. But obviously they're both fantastic. But I can't remember which episode it is where he's so bored that he pretends that he's taking this really serious phone call. It's just things <laughs> like that. It's, it's just absolutely brilliant. When you go when you go closer on his face, yeah. I mean they both got good eyes. Yeah. The, the oh, they're both at their most beautiful at this point, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. They are trying to be disgusting, but they're both beautiful. Yeah. You go in close on their eyes and let their eyes fill the screen, and they really perform straight down the lens of the camera. And you watch the way that Rick Mayall, say in the Gas Man episode, drinks the tea made with hot tap water, and it's all in his eyes. Yeah. When I was younger, I think of Bottom as being this throwaway slapstick stupidness but actually there's like real loneliness and pain and weirdness and mental illness and all that sort of stuff all wrapped (laughs) up in this sitcom in a way that you don't get with my family one of the things that hadn't occurred to me I thought, well, these are these, there are these two terrible scrotes who will, you know, drink mazola and eat lard and things like that, but they're both wearing ties the whole time. Yes. <laughs> and stuff like that. They're quite well-dressed, aren't they? They've got standards. <laughs> Just remember another thing. that like There's a real beautiful rhythm to a lot of the writing as well, because um, I watched Culture this morning before coming out and I'd forgotten about that perno, ouzo, marmalade and salt. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> That's funny. That's a funny line. It is. Good comedy is music, though, isn't yeah. it? You know, you've got to get the notes right. Hold up. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Also, the props in this. I mean, there's so many good prop gags in oh. it. I was looking up the props by Bob Warren. He's done the props for absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. He got a special BAFTA last year for his services really? to TV. Yeah, because he just made tons of props that are going to get smashed to shit, aren't they? You keep looking at those scenes. Uh, they're all spiritual cousins of the bit in The Young Ones when Rick goes down the banisters. Yeah. And each banister rod comes off around his knackers. They've all been, I imagine, pre-filmed and then played into the audience to get the rhythm that Ed Bayer gives them. But still, they would have had one shot at filming this because Bob Warrens will have built one of all these things. So when they smash a chair, they better capture that moment. It's interesting that you mentioned The Young Ones. So I watched The Young Ones, but I don't think I've seen The Young Ones anywhere near as much as I've seen Bottom either. So it's not even like... I never... Not that I'm not into The Young Ones. It's just one of those sitcoms that sort of passed me by. So now when I look back on The Young Ones, for me, it's a not-as-good version as, of Bottom. I think it was the other way around for us. We were, we were so obsessed by The Young Ones yeah. that this looked like a slightly more simplistic film with The Young Ones with, with Mike and Neil missing. And actually, watching it again, I'm now appreciating it as a thing on its own that has got Beckett-y qualities and also just pure clowning. Also, more sense and cogency. The Young Ones gets its reputation from, I think, the general joy of the thing and the fact that no one had done it before and also probably two or three episodes that have got proper sitcom structure that you remember very very fondly and otherwise it's just delicious chaos. What's great about this is it's quite tight. Yeah, I I think even at the time, I remember that when Bottom first came out, there was a real sort of, oh, it's just a rehash of the young ones. I think that is what the press, or at least just people that I knew that were a bit older than me, like that was the idea, Bottom is just not as good as the young ones. But I I think it stands up as an amazing sitcom. Just remembered another. I'm just talking about bits that I really like now. A thing that <laughs> I really, that. really love in sitcoms and Peep Show do it as well is when one character really loves Christmas and the other one doesn't love Christmas. <laughs> it's one of my favourite things. I think it's so funny. Because 
Christmas episode where he comes in, he's so excited because it's Christmas. And it, I love that episode of Peep Show as well. It's great, isn't it? Jess because, is just like, it's Christmas. And Mark's like, oh, God. But it's like the most perfect bit of status play, I yeah. think. If yeah. you ever want yeah. to explain status play to a new writer, the character who loves Christmas and the character who hates Christmas is the perfect way of doing it. And status is a really interesting thing because it's one of those keys to the to the cupboard of comedy you get given and you go, oh, does everyone else know this? I remember being taught it quite late by someone who'd gone and studied it at drama college or something. They told me about this and we've used it to get work before because you sit in, we do work occasionally for advertising and get asked to help to punch up scripts for adverts. Yeah. And the thing that no one in advertising knows is status. Yeah. And you sit there, because the thing in advertising, the, the client always wants everyone to win we've got these two guys and they both get the girl because they drink our product and you went well one of them has to not get the girl yeah i'm so obsessed with status like whenever i try and sit and like write either a spec script or if i've been commissioned to write something that isn't my own project because obviously when it's a project that already exists like danger mouse you know i already know the relationship between danger mouse and penfold when you go into it and you're trying to come up with the first thing i do is work out the statuses or even just the starting point of people's statuses or or where they think they are because the interesting thing about eddie and richie is they both think that they're higher status than each Mm. other even if they're not see i I, the other way around for you i always saw eddie as the high status one yeah He's clever. Yeah, and Richie is because he's a, Richie's an absolute idiot. But there are some episodes where it all flips round. The, the way I sit down is I go, who is my like my central character? Who is higher than them? Who is lower than them? Who thinks it's the other way round? And I just always start from that point. Thinking it's the other way round is really good. We looked into this when when we got offered the Danger Mouse gig. Yeah. The first question you go, well, this guy's a superhero. The song at the beginning says yeah. he's the best in the world. So you go, he's high status. Then the next question is. Well, what bad can happen to him? Yeah. Being too brave. I mean, you have to rinse these things to get any plots out of someone yeah. who is high status and happy being high status. Yeah. I mean, I sort of prefer writing the Penfold plots because Penfold's more complicated because Danger Mouse is high status and he's good at what he does. And so you're basically knocking him off a pedestal every time. Whereas Penfold is insecure, He, but he's really good. If you put him in a situation, he can be the really excellent yeah. one, but he yeah. doesn't believe he can be and no one else believes he can be but you can have a character that does believe in him and there's so much more to play with with a complicated status than there is with just hey this person's brilliant the one i always liked was if you watch police squad you remember frank drebin being a, a clumsy klutzy cop but he's not he's high status he's the best cop in the whole city he can solve all the crimes he's amazing he's a super adam west lantern jawed hero and when they make the films of it when they make the naked gun films he's a different character he's low status he's like inspector cluzo he's falling over all the yeah. time they've run out of jokes to play with a high status detective and they've gone for a low status detective <laughs> either of them I didn't know Rick Mayo I don't know Aid Edmondson I don't know anybody who works with them so I don't know whether they were easy to work with or whether it was the most difficult thing in the world of getting and part of me doesn't even want to know to be honest because I like to be able to sit back and just go this is an incredible these are incredible performances with brilliant mad ideas behind them I mean there mm. are like the, the gas man episode they basically decide to kill the gas man and then eat him and eat him <laughs> <laughs> I mean what that's just uh, because they've been stealing gas that's all it is they're yeah. just stealing gas that's the only reason why they want to kill any or the burglar episode where they tape him to the ceiling <laughs> I mean 
What's the real fun of this? Maybe this is what's so liberating about watching it is that no one said no. Yeah. You get the feeling that at any point when they went, okay, so Rick Miles going to go down with a knife and fork and yep. attempt to eat a dead gas man. Yeah. No one's gone. Are you sure? And the sheer energy of the performance and the confidence says. I can sell this to the audience. Again, there's a live audience there who on the night will laugh at me doing this. So trust me, we'll get in front of some people who will tell you this was the right decision. And you know that if it was a single camera sitcom and you were then sitting in a quiet edit suite editing it, someone would go, actually, can we lose? And the unarguable sound of a hysterical audience gets you over all those lumps of underconfidence. What on earth are you eating? Lard. that I love about Radio 4 is that it's the one place where you can still do quite weird audience sitcoms. I mean, obviously, there's still the whole commissioning process and everything, but... Mm. Like, so for me, I learned how to write by doing live shows. So I started as a stand-up and then I wrote this very odd musical that I still love called Sister Psycho and I wrote another musical and I wrote a play called Take a Break Tales and these were all Edinburgh shows. So they have to work in front of an audience and I work with Colin Holt a lot who... There's no-one I trust more with a script. Like, I know that I can give Colin Holt a script that's got four jokes in it and he'll find 12. Yes. He's fucking brilliant. That's what you want, That is what you want from a performer. And so you, as a writer, you write loads and loads of gags. And I, going back and watching Bottom, there's some really, uh, there's lines in Bottom that aren't, if you read them on the page, aren't funny. But the reason that they are funny, which I think is true of all great comedy, the reason that they are funny is in the context and the performance. And, yes. and I think sometimes that with sitcoms that are written, if there's a distance between the writer and performer, and I say this as someone who is the writer and, and, and not the performer, when there's a distance, you can see in the eyes of the performer that they don't quite believe in the line. Yes. And that is where everything comes undone. Well, that maybe ties back to your question about were they easy to work with, were they difficult to work yeah. with? I, I never met Rick Mayle. I did meet Aid Edmondson for the first time last year and he was delightful. But I think the thing you can tell is going on in this show here is that they're having a fucking great time, yes. aren't they? They're really enjoying this they're enjoying it but they don't do the thing that I really hate which is cor- like I, I know that we all love corpsing I hate fake corpsing oh. like I really hate fake corpsing it's cheating isn't it we, we've, seen, cheating. we've seen rehearsed corpsing oh. when you see corpsing in the in the dry run and the rehearsal and you go oh god that's going to work as well the audience is going to fall for oh it oh my god look at it I, I hate like I really hate it and we all know it works and the audiences love it but as a writer and as a performer I'm like do you know what if you want to make each other laugh do it for real <laughs> like, don't, like don't have a yeah. bit in your show where so this is what we did with Take a Break Tales. There'd be a couple of places where I'd say to the cast, which were uh, Neil Edmund, Emma Fryer and Izzy City, I'd say, like, so one one day I improvised a line, it made everybody laugh. And I said, I'm not going to do that again. Like, if you want, well, let's have bits where you can improvise. And if you want to try and get that genuine corpsing thing, let's actually do it. Let's yeah. have bits in the show where you are allowed to try and make someone else laugh. And that's absolutely fine. But don't pretend to laugh at something that you laughed at yesterday, because it, again, we're all performers. Do it for real. And also the audience will fall for it. But it's a slightly it's 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 not real flavour. It's artificial flavouring. Yeah. It's, it's, it's MSG. Cheap. Yeah. yeah. You've added it in because it's it, of course it's nice to watch someone laugh, but also it does pull you out of the the reality of the thing. I like in this in bottom that they do wink at the audience throughout it. There's a lot of to camera straight down the lens, but they never break character doing it. I think that's Eddie 
looking down the camera at me going, isn't this fun? Yeah. I don't think it's Adrian Edmondson. And that's why I think the bottom live... So have you seen the bottom live sh- uh, no, show? No, no. It's not as good, and it's because all of it is breaking the fourth wall. Like, it's so much of it is the, oh, that's not what you said in rehearsal. Like, there's oh, so really? much of that, and it, it just makes you go, oh, this isn't, this isn't bottom, this isn't what... Like, I totally buy into these two characters, and now what I'm watching is Rick and Aid having yeah. fun in a live show rather than these two lost and lonely weird characters stuck in a flat in Hammersmith. That's never occurred to me about the young ones. I never thought... There's a bit in the young ones where they all swap wigs, (laughs) which is very, very funny. funny. But I think it's the only point at which I thought that was Adrian Edmondson and Nigel Planer uh, uh, mucking about. I always thought it was Neil... And Vivian mucking about. Yeah. There's a reality to it. It's like these people have put on a play for you. Yeah. Which again is slightly Beckett. As in where's the where's the edge of this play? And the play appears to have the ability to include the audience, even though these characters are real. Yeah. And that's magic. So they Rick and A did they were in Godot, weren't they? They were in yeah. Waiting for Godot the same year as the pilot of Bottom. So do we should when we could find this out probably, but it'd be interesting to know which project influenced the other one, yeah. or whether they were just into Beckett or something at the time. The thing that I looked up was clowns because of the Beckett thing, and I thought, especially because they're as you said, they're beautiful men at this point, mm. but they are dressed as disgusting tramps, yeah, in in suit and tie, like pure Chaplin. Um, and I looked it up, and there's. In classical clowning, which about which I know nothing, I've done very little research into being a clown because it's not my job. I know a little bit about being a clown. Well, maybe you'll be able to tell me this. There, there, are, there are three types of clown on this classic clown trip. There's a hobo clown mm-hmm. who's like a character clown who is sort of Father Jack, and there's the white-faced clown who is the authority figure who often thinks he's much grander than he is, and there's uh, an Auguste clown, which is the red-nosed funny one. And I was looking at this going, well, they're clowns and they're Beckett. Which clowns are they? And I thought, oh, God, they've got the white face one missing. Yeah. Father Ted isn't there. This is Dougal and Jack. Yeah. This is, they're the ones who are doing disgusting bodily functions and sexual urges <laughs> and a lot of winking at the audience and big honk, honk. This is the clowns without the man in charge. Yeah. It's chaos. But I wonder if they ever, like, <laughs> I wonder if they ever sat down and thought of it as academically as this. I hope not. I mean, I hope not. To be honest... I'm ruining it. Yeah, I know, but I bet they didn't. I bet bet it was just like, what is funny? What would be funny? What would be a funny thing for us to do? Wouldn't it be funny if we went to see a gypsy and she told us the world was going (laughs) to... But because there's that Beckett thing, you sort of think there must be a bit of intellect to it. And and they were both smart, you know, they're smart guys. So I'm sure it wasn't as dissected as we're doing, but I don't think it's just, hey, let's just piss about and it just happens to create this absolutely beautiful thing. The joy of it, especially watching an episode called Culture, is this isn't low art. Yeah. This has got echoes of high art in it because it's pure clowning. I can't do clowning. It's really like to to clown properly, you have to really surrender your status on stage. And as a stand-up, it's the opposite of what you always do because your job as a stand-up is to control a room. And it's really difficult to go from stand-up to being a proper clown because you have to be so vulnerable to be a clown, no matter which clown you are, because the whole point is that you're you're making people laugh at you and sometimes you don't know why. And as a stand-up, you're like, I've written this and I know why you're laughing at this stuff. Whereas a clown, sometimes you need to let go of all that and, you know, you can't even go, right, if I do this, this and this, people will laugh. You end up in the moment doing something and people are laughing and you don't even know why they're laughing, but it works until you go along with it. That's such a good point. Um, I'd never thought about that. I could give you the example of Stuart Lee, who... Mm 
used to be very, I mean, still is very cerebral, but is a clown on stage. He studied and, that. Yeah, and he's really gone for the clowning. I bumped in at, at the Clown Museum in Hackney yeah. when he was researching this. He did a radio show. And then his persona on stage changed in a way that lots of people didn't notice. Yeah. He possessed and owned his clown to an extent that he totally commanded the stage yeah. and became twice as funny. When I saw Content Provider, because I hadn't seen, like I'd seen the stuff on the TV that he'd been doing, there's moments in that show that are pure clowning in a way that... I could never do where I am at the moment as a stand-up. Like, everything I do is written. It's all on the page. You could, you know, there's a bit of improvisation. There's a bit of playing with the with the audience. But there's moments that are... And you don't see stand-ups do it very often. Even the clowny stand-ups don't do as much clowning as Stuart Lee. Or the, the <laughs> mate, 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 all that rep, like repetition. Yeah. Clowning is yeah. repetition. Like, yeah. the first thing you get taught at clown school, which I have done. I went to a one-week workshop on clowning because I was really fascinated <laughs> by it. The first thing they teach you is if something works in front of the audience you do it again and you keep doing it until they stop laughing which is Stuart Lee's entire career <laughs> yeah and, it's, and it's is. also how you treat a baby isn't it yeah yeah, you the baby just, laughs at the thing, you do it again, peekaboo, peekaboo, yeah. peekaboo. And that's what clowning is repetition. That's all it is. It's doing it's doing the same thing over and over again until the audience don't find it funny anymore. But if you're Stuart Lee, you do it some more and then they come back. But even in clowning, that's kind of what they teach you. So this is where, we've, we, where we get to the point where they're clouting the gas man with the yes. frying pan. We yeah. just keep doing this. Yeah. Which, also, then, which then moves into what Vic and Bob do. Yeah. And they are, there's no doubt when you look at those guys, you go, well, these guys have got the essence of clowns. Yeah. Because I cannot explain what they're doing because it's not words yeah. and as writers it's almost embarrassing to have to admit that you have to go non-verbal and just surrender yeah I can't do it like I couldn't write a bit in in anything like so there was a, a bit in gutted where um so it was a big musical and there'd be like a a bit where Colin was singing to his son about how he's given himself over to the police and it's this long sort of beautiful bit of music that builds and builds and builds and it was all quite instrumental or it has like one line repeated so on the page it's not funny there's no there's no jokes in there at all it's just Colin saying I'll do it for him I'll do it for him and this music builds and the the lyric is not funny and what Colin Holt did was whenever he was doing this in front of the audience he'd do a different bit of dancing to it which got to the point where he'd mime driving a car so he'd be singing this really serious thing to Doc Brown about how he loved his son and he'd be miming driving a car around the stage and it was the like it was the funniest thing I've ever seen and he'd do something different every time and the whole of the cast would be pissing themselves That's what I, and it's just I can't do that I cannot sit there and go there's a bit where Colin Holt pretends to be driving a car because it doesn't even make sense within the context of the show and that's the thing that I love about Bottom and you can see again with the frying pan but you can see that they've probably gone hit, in the script hit him three times yeah. And that's getting a big laugh. So they keep hitting him and they keep hitting him until it's not getting a laugh. And then they hit him again and then they hit him some more. Can we, have a, can we say a word about the titles, by the way, of this? I know that's an odd thing to bring up, but I was watching them last, last night again and going, these are really simple. I'd never really thought about them before, but they're great because what, what you get, first of all, is two blokes who've got nowhere to go. So they're on a bench on Hammersmith Broadway, yeah. whacking each other with papers and annoying each other. Then you get them looking out of a window, and it's not a window, it's artifice. This thing doesn't exist. It's, it's for, a fake window. Yeah. Hanging it's a in fake space. window. It's for what eventually became the Coca Cola building at Hammersmith Broadway and the shopping centre. And the other thing is that the music underneath it is nearly falling apart. It's really clunky. And I sort of thought, that tells you you everything you need to know about this show doesn't yeah. it it's kind of on the verge of collapse it's total artifice and these two guys are annoying each other yeah. sums up the whole thing 
and and in the titles, um, Rick Mayo's character cries. Yeah, which really, <laughs> that's something that I always thought was so lovely. Like it totally captures their relationship. You don't need to know anything up more than like he's just sobbing while <laughs> being punched in the balls. Yeah, and that bench on Hammersmith Broadway now has a plaque on it dedicated to Rick Mayo. Doesn't yeah, it? that's beautiful. Which is yeah. lovely. And I used to love the end titles as well because yeah. you know you did the little dance at the end like Dancing they did. Black and white before yeah. the iPod advert. Yeah, and yeah. that's what I was watching that going. I don't know how they did that because it's a really clever video. It's effect. rotoscoping. It takes ages because we did a, a spoof uh, iPod advert for Mitchell and Webb. Yeah. And Ben Gosling, full of the director, had to go through with a pen and trace Robert Webb dancing. Really? Because I said, surely there's a plug-in that does this. And he went, no, it's done. I said, like, bottom and the iPhone adverts. And he went, that's animation. It takes ages. You have to do it by hand. The love that's gone into this. Oh. So they care. Oh. And how many series were there? Three. And the, th- like the third series is a little more up and down, I think, because when it's, it, when it's so self-contained and you're the only two writers, the problem is that you start running out of ideas. Yeah. And that's why I think sometimes people think of the American system as being amazing because you can have all these different, you know, look, look at some of the episodes of Community and that's because they've got a writer's room and, and they've got a team coming up with stuff. If you're just two guys making each other laugh, it's really hard to sustain all these different ideas. You will run out of steam. Yeah. There's a great um, writing technique that uh, I think it's Paul Fee had on um, Freaks and Geeks, where he'd get the writing room together and said, right, it's about high school. Right, I'll give you five minutes, write down 50 ideas of something that could happen to you at high school. And he said the first 10 ideas were all the same. Yeah. He said the ones at the bottom when people were running out of time was unique and personal and and that's what they made all their stories out of there were ones like a friend had a peanut allergy you have to mine down dig into people because the surface 10 stories are what we all write yeah that's the one about one of them likes christmas one doesn't like christmas but but, it's funny yeah but that's a banker we've got that one (laughs) but it's the ones down the bottom is what i think enables you to have that many series of cheers and that many series of the simpsons is people drilling down but the joy of most British sitcoms is it's the top 18 ideas you have. The thing about Bottom is that the one, it, because it's such a kind of fucking carnival that each episode contains dozens and dozens of ideas, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, even just down to things like, well, we haven't got a chess set, we'll, say we'll have to build one out of action figures and sausages, you know, stuff like that. That's a whole set of ideas on its own. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit... Like um, Rick and Morty in that sense. Like The thing that yeah. I love about Rick and Morty is how many ideas are in... I mean, it's also brilliant and funny, but it's how many ideas are in there. And Bottom's the same because because they've confined themselves in this way. They have to really go for the imagination and what... I mean, I, I don't think you would get to the place of eating a gas man. No. Unless, <laughs> unless you'd put yourself in a box. Because if you can have the, the setup of, oh, we go out for a bit and then we come back for a bit and then someone comes around, you know, all that sort of stuff, you really have to be put the fence around yourself to get those weird ideas. They are just talking. That's yeah. all they've got. They haven't got sets. They haven't got other characters necessarily yeah. immediately to hand. It's not like a an office or a bar or a hospital. Yeah. They've got each other to play off. And so they take an idea for a walk, and maybe the joy of this is is a bit like the joy of that you get with Vic and Bob, that it's two friends who've started from here, and they've taken an idea for a walk, and they will go through all the ideas they have within that box. The only person who can say no to this 
is my best friend. Yeah. So we've got to trust each other on yeah, this. Yeah, I was talking to my boyfriend, my partner slash boyfriend, because I think I was going to say partner and then I thought that sounds like writing, writing partner. My partner slash boyfriend slash uh, baby daddy. So I did a script read through for the BBC a few years ago and it went through that casting process of, yes, we like this random person, this random person, this random person, and they're meant to be playing best friends. And and I think it was a good script and I was really proud of it. But I think where it really fell down was you look at these three people like these aren't three best friends. These yes. do not look like they know each other. This is just the arbitrary casting process of someone at the BBC. If you're going to have that chemistry, it's got to sort of be real. That's why Peep Show is so yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like you know, and and that's also why I think something like Red Dwarf works because I loved Red Dwarf as well because they're meant to not like each other. So you can get two strangers, yes. stick them together, and have the antagonism. You can do that because that is the sit. If the sit is these people have known each other for a long time, or they're best friends, or, or they've siblings, got this, or something. yeah, or they've got this weird relationship, and then you're just casting two random people. You're never going to find that magic. We go back to the audience, look in their eyes and see confidence. Yeah. And that you'll have confidence if your best friend's got your back. Yeah. If you're going on this adventure together, if their best mate is going to back them up. If, if I say something stupid like I'm going to eat the gas man. Yeah. That your best mate looks into the audience and says, I dare you to say that guy's not brilliant. You see in their eyes, they're confident in each other and they're going to take this journey together. And you can't fake that by bunging just some people who happen to be, to share an agent together. Yeah, the, the chemistry, I guess, is really fascinating. I always loved Double X when I was younger. Um, uh, the first thing I ever went to see live was Cannon and Ball when I was nine years old. <laughs> I was obsessed with Cannon and Ball. That's I loved experience. them. Formative. But if you ever watch Cannon and Ball, now they're still really funny. If you watch any Cannon and Ball, there's no material. It's just a relationship. Right. I mean, it's very much straight man, uh, funny man, which I don't think Bottom is. I think it's two very funny people, yeah. which again is why it's really different from a lot That's of those Eddie things. Eddie Brave and Eric and Ernie. Th yeah. There's two funny men. Yeah, and, and same with um, Peep Show as well. They're both funny. You don't have... There's no Martin Freeman. Not that Martin Freeman isn't funny, I've seen. Yeah. Or his character in The Office, you know. There's no straight character in this. They're both yeah. really funny. Cannon and Ball. Tommy Cannon isn't funny. Bobby Ball is really funny, but the whole thing that works is their relationship. And when that does work, I don't know why we don't utilise that more in sitcom. I don't know why. And that's why Mrs Brown's Boys works. I mean, that is why it works. It's because it's an existing relationship and they all know and they've all got each other back and they trust that and they trust that if something doesn't work then no one's going to be hung out to dry and made to look like a prick and if it doesn't yeah. work it doesn't work that was something miranda said to her cast on day one of shooting the sitcom she said to them she said i'm going to go quite big and quite stupid yeah and you've got to come up and join me up there otherwise i won't look good and you won't look good yeah. we've all got to get this we're a little team a little crew we're all going to do the most pantomime over the top waving at the audience acting possible but you've got to join me there because you won't look cool by not being part of this gang can you imagine if they'd just taken rick mail and gone well rick you're really really funny and aid's great but you're really funny and here are four people that we found through a casting process to put next to you yeah it's just mm. not that's not gonna work it works when it's friends one of the nicest things that can happen accidentally with casting and it happened to us a couple of times we've been really lucky with it is that you get this list of what people want for their casting mm. and you go oh, they're all really great and then at the end they're all unavailable and you have to go i'm so it's only a week to go. We're getting our mates in. Yeah. They just knock it out of the park because they all know each other, they trust each other, and they're all on the mission together. And it's much better. I really like, at, at the last minute, recasting the entire thing with six people you've had a drink with. I think this is why my live stuff has worked so well, is because it's people that I trust who all know each other. 
and know that each other's funny. You know, if I've got Colin Holt on stage with Margaret Cable and Smith, they both know that they're funny. They both know that you're right. They'll join the other one. And, and Colin doesn't break character. One of the things I love about him is he... For weeks. He, yeah, he, just, <laughs> but he, he doesn't. He's really... He takes himself really seriously as an actor. So if everybody else is mugging or breaking... Like when we did Gutted, there was... It got to a point where Humphrey Carr was in it and he would come out on stage and go, well, it's just a play, isn't it? And it would... Oh, my God, it would drive me insane that he'd do that. Like he would bail on it because it got... It, like the production had so many problems. And Humphrey's instinct was to bail on it and say to the audience, I know this isn't working, I'm with you. I'm in the lifeboats and I'm off. Yeah. Not women and children first, I'm going. And Colin never, ever, ever did that. Saluting on the prow like the captain. That's why Colin was the funniest person in it, though, because when he stuck with it, the audience went with him. I think this is, again, we're coming back to the central core of what makes Bottom work, I think, is confidence and trust. And these two people know each other. And what you're enjoying watching it is two people who are leaning against each other in a trust exercise to say, no matter how stupid this gets, no matter how how disgusting this gets, no matter how preposterous the next logical or illogical step in this story we've written is, we're going with it and we dare you not to follow us. remember seeing Anna and Katie doing one of their sketch shows up in Edinburgh. They're amazing. They're so brilliant. They're so brilliant. Ed Bye directed their... uh, the Channel 4 show. Oh, yeah. there's a connection. Um, but because it was non-audience, I think they all found it a bit difficult because so they'd be doing this non-audience thing and no one would go, that was really funny. So they'd be like, was, was this Anna funny? And Anna Krilly and Katie Wicks. That's really strange. They feel like best friends. Yeah. And I didn't realise when I saw first saw their first Edinburgh show, they'd only just met. Yeah. And it was like <laughs> meeting two people from other sides of the world who speak some strange Navajo language that only <laughs> ten people speak. And you couldn't believe they'd got together because they dared the audience to not follow them oh my goodness like, well, that's what I was going to say I've, I've sat in the audience and they did brilliantly they've got they had a Channel 4 series their shows have got five star reviews but I remember I think it was their second Edinburgh show got one star in the Scotsman because it was someone who didn't like it and I remember going to see it and half the audience were pissing themselves and half the audience sat there in stony silence and Anna and Katie's thing is if you're not laughing we will do this even more like they double <laughs> down on whatever they're doing with each other you know if, if the audience are losing patients they they sort of like meld into each other and go we are doing this and and obviously they have the instinct to make the audience laugh as well but i've never seen one of them leave the other one behind we are currently on the worldwide tour basically just going all over the world and just measuring things 36 the best of the day okay so tell me about your family my mother was four foot three, 500 paces between my room and my brother's room. Like, you would never get Anna saying to Katie, uh, well, that didn't work, did it? That was rubbish. It, yeah. w- it would always be like, we are a team and this is, we are coming. It, it still frustrates me now that Anna and Katie haven't had their own sitcom. I've, I've pitched so many things with them. We did one. Yeah, yeah we wrote we one. Won, it was going really well. Colin Holt in it. It was going to be amazing. Oh, my God. Colin that sounds Holt, Dimitrio, Jeff McGiven. It was brilliant. <gasps> and then uh, they just changed their mind overnight. They commissioned it and then they, they phoned us and went, we've decided not to. Went, oh, right. That was really good. They were lovely in it as well. But it was, we were desperate to do something with them. They should have, they're the missing I always think of them as a missing link. There's there's a, a whole generation who they would have been their French and Saunders. Yeah. And or their Vic and Bob. It would have been amazing. Um and I I love those two. But what you're talking about here is something which is really germane to bottom, I think. The joy of watching this is two friends yeah. making each other laugh. 
Which, and that's pure. So if you're listening to this wondering how to write comedy, it's have a really funny best friend. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Well, you can, you can ride on their coattails yeah. in one way or you could both become as funny as each other. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's odd, though. As writers, we come to this and we've gone, oh, isn't it brilliant when two brilliant performers just get each other? Because there's nothing that we, we as writers... I mean, you can shore it up a bit, but that's a... I can't bring that. That's As the writer, I can't do that. One of the things that's really hard to admit as a writer, as a comedy writer, is collaboration is where a lot of the magic happens. Mm. And the trick is to find good collaborators, people you trust, and to do stuff in a group because you can't do it on your own. Yeah. By definition. I mean, I'm writing a play for Edinburgh this year that will star Anna Crilly and Margaret Cable-Smith. There you go. <laughs> so exciting! It's so exciting when you write for people that are funny and get your stuff, and you get them. That's as a writer, that's the best feeling. That the worst thing is when you're brought on to work on a script with some actors that you don't know. They don't know you. No one really likes each other. It's the difference between between loving sex and porn. One of them is just faking it. Yeah, it's not real. And on that bombshell, surely <laughs> we should say thank you very much, Daniel, for bringing thanks, on Daniel. Bottom. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.